This episode is brought to you by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills and a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there's something for everyone from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking, gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 218 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about building a yarn company with my guest, Nicole Snow. United States Air Force veteran, entrepreneur, mom to a five-year-old, wife, founder, and CEO, Nicole is the Jane of all trades. In 2008, out of a desire to create a business focused on social consciousness through crafting and design, Nicole founded Darn Good Yarn. Over the past 13 years, Darn Good Yarn has saved over 2 million pounds of manufacturing remnant material from ending up in landfills or rivers, upcycling it into handmade craft supplies and apparel, while employing more than 600 global artisans. Darn Good Yarn has appeared for the last five years on the Inc. 5000 list. Nicole Snow, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Yeah, it's great to have you. And um, I'm very excited to hear about your journey because this is a pretty incredible company and presence in the yarn world. So um, where did you grow up? I know you live in, is it upstate New York now? Actually, I moved um, during, I had one of those like COVID moves, like everyone, which is why the real estate market's so nutty. So I moved, um, my husband who worked for the company and my daughter, we moved to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And then I head back to central New York every couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, lucky for Zoom, I just, I go back and forth. So the business itself is uh, located in Clifton Park, New York, which is um, between Albany and Saratoga Springs. Okay, nice. I love Portsmouth. Portsmouth is a great town. I had some shows at some galleries there, and it's just very, like, cute and New England and artsy, too. Yeah, this, it's it's, I've never, like, I've moved a lot of places. I've lived all over California. I lived in Alaska, Utah, and they're all great places, but I really feel at home here. It's just, these are my people, my peeps. Yeah, absolutely. So um, did you, you said you've lived all over the place. Did you grow up on the West Coast? No, I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. I grew up in the suburbs in New Jersey. Um, and then I I went to school in upstate New York at Clarkson. And from there, I went to the Air Force uh, out in California. And then my husband's job, he worked for Raytheon, uh, which is a defense contractor. And it was his job that moved us all over the place. So that was really the start of the business because um, at the time, his company only allowed like, I want to say it was like 3,000 or 5,000 pounds for us to move our household goods, which is 
nothing. If you think about like when you go to, I like to tell people, if you think about when you go to um, like fly with your luggage, like just how heavy 50 pounds is and like, okay, so you only get 10 suitcases essentially. So that's, I learned very quickly, like with my business, I had to keep it small, get my inventory turning because I couldn't really pack all that much with me because we had to move every six months. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So while you were at Clarkson, you did ROTC. So what was that like? I um, I went to Johns Hopkins and we had ROTC on our campus as well. And I wrote a piece, I remember, for the campus newspaper about the women who were in Johns Hopkins ROTC, which were like five out of everybody, <laughs> um, and what their experience was like. So I'm sort of fascinated by college ROTC programs. Um, yeah, I mean, for me... It was interesting because I, in high school, I was very active with junior ROTC. Um, I was a squadron commander for two years, and I was also in Civil Air Patrol. I was heavily involved with Civil Air Patrol, which um, for a young kid, like I, you know, divorced parents, it was kind of chaotic at home to have the outlet of that structured um, place where I can, you know, do physical activity and sort of learn these other traits. Um, That was probably one of the most critical parts of me, like being a success story from a less than great growing up atmosphere. I'll say that. So um, in terms of then going into ROTC in college, I really had a lot of, um, I had a leg up in that way because I I was just so indoctrinated to this like paramilitary environment. Um, So in that place, in that way, I really thrived and I could beat all the boys in pushups. I mean, my record it was like 89 boy push-ups, guy push-ups in two minutes. So I used to be like, that's amazing. Oh my God. I did 20 push-ups yesterday and thought I was so tough. So that's, that's <laughs> really great. Um, I was, I used to, I, I would go in beast mode. So it was interesting. I mean, it was, there were not a lot of women in there. So, you know, as I look back, um, you know, in your early twenties, and I'm sure, you know, maybe listeners can get it too, is that you're such a different person. Like we're always, we're always evolving, but especially from like 20 to 30, it's like, Whoa, baby. And now I'm turning 40 this year. And, um, the, I think there's such an opportunity for additional mentorship for women in those environments. Um, because you're kind of like grasping and using like very elusive mentors that aren't really like right in front of you. And I think the same is true even in business. There's, you know, we're seeing more of that happen, but to say like, oh, I can be like that person, um, it's hard when you're the minority. Like I, I did always feel like I was on the outside for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then after you graduated, you were in the Air Force and it was an interesting job. I think when we think of Air Force, we think you're going to be flying, but right. you were kind of working at almost on like a business role in the Air Force. Yeah. I, um, well, I wanted to be a pilot. So I had started through Civil Air Patrol flying when I was 14. Um, and I met my husband, who's now my husband. We've been married now for 16 years. But um, I met him when I was in college. And I'm like, I like you. <laughs> I'm not going to be a pilot. Like, I'm so not that for anyone who knows me personally. Like, I'm not this uh, hopeless romantic. But with him, I was like, I'm going to be with you forever. So in... Um, in my role in the Air Force, though, I was a contract officer. So I wrote the contracts between small businesses and the Air Force. Um, and that really, that was great because it used my actual like college, what I went to school for, which was international business studies. So it worked out. And now I get to use it every day as well. Yeah, I was going to say, do some of the 
either those business skills or just other skills that you picked up during all of these years sort of affiliated with the military, do those carry forward into your life or your business life today? They do. And I think, um, you know, one of the most critical is, you know, integrity first. And that was, you know, it's one of the core, uh, core competencies of the Air Force. Um, it's not that I developed integrity because I was in the Air Force, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. But um, when I think about, I think the most important thing, and I think what makes the business really special is how we approach our supply chain. And what I mean by that is, just like with the Air Force, and when I was writing a contract with a small business, just by default, because of the size of the Air Force and it being the U.S. government, we had the upper hand in the contract. And it was very important to always realize the the um, the power you actually had and you had to respect that. And I think in the same way, when I look at our supply chain, because we're dealing with exceptionally poor regions of India mostly, and you have to be very respectful of the power that you have still. And that in doing that and being um, I think keeping a filter on and shining light on that has allowed us to have these people look at the business and go like, these are really amazing relationships that we have. So what I mean by that is we don't just go in and get like the lowest cost product. We're going in to say, how can we make these artisans lives better and building it up little by little so that it's sustainable. And with my key suppliers, I, I've been working with them now for over a decade. I've been in business for 14 years and that's a testament to being invested in how well they do too. Like I'm not just in it to get the best bottom dollar deal and then leave them because that's not sustainable for anyone. And you had a business before this business Mm -hmm. um, and it was a women's clothing business, but it was also an import business similar to this one. Yeah. So tell us about that one, how you started it and what it was like. <laughs> I call that my Fisher Price business. That was like, you know, the the, the uh, training wheels were still on. Um, I really specialized in more home goods and some apparel. I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I, and I think the same thing is true for this business because it's e-commerce and it continues to evolve so rapidly. Um but with the first business, it was called Around the Ohm, and I taught myself how to do uh, my own photography. And if you remember back, let me think, it was 2005, 2006. Do you remember when you used to get digital cameras, and then the software that came with it was like you could um, you could edit pictures with it. Like that was your that was your software, and so yeah, that was my that was my blog photos back in 2005, and they were terrible. But I mean, that's, that's what I did. Like, I remember like trying to take the backgrounds out. Like, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So um, I I learned how to code. Uh, I made my first website on Dreamweaver. And I would really, though, where I really learned how to sell and understand what consumers want was also going to craft fairs. So I had my $1,500 Dodge Caravan with beaded seats. And it had... Um, it had plastic hubcaps. Oh, it was so sexy. And I would load that baby up and I would go do go to craft fairs and just talk to people and figure out what they're making, what they're wearing. And that's really how I built out my catalog. And then Darn Good Yarn was sort of a spinoff because I wanted to learn how to knit. And I said, well, let me just use my supply chain contacts that I already have from this business. And I found out about recycled silk yarn coming out of Nepal. 
And then from there, the whole idea of bringing in this really cool recycled yarn, I'd never seen it before, turned into this thing because the women that were making, and they still do make the yarn, um, this was just a very part-time gig for them. And I was like, this yarn is too pretty though. Like, why isn't this full-time? And that's when I started to ask those more like socioeconomic questions that I realized like, man, if I can just make a couple of like full-time jobs, that would be impactful for these people. Um, and then that's where Darn Good Yarn really morphed from. Okay. So yeah, it did morph. And how did you even know how to get connections? Like, I think if I were to say, oh, I'm going to start an import business tomorrow with, you know, products coming from Nepal and India, I would have no idea where to start. Did you travel there or did you know someone who knew people or how did you even find? Not initially. Okay. Not initially. I, I love the Google, like the holy God of the Google I love. So I, um, I found a couple of smaller suppliers and it was a, back then it was a lot like a dating game. Like I would meet people and I would try to get samples sent to me. And um, again, not really knowing what I was doing. But I have, I think one of my gifts is like, I'm really okay to ask very stupid questions. So I think in some way it can not disarm people to be manipulative, but it it shares more than just like, where is this coming from? And what's the sourcing? Like I really got into the intricacies of it, of the products. And um, I don't know, I just, I mean, to move product from one side of the world to the other initially wasn't really that difficult because you're putting it on a plane. So you're using something like a FedEx trade network or UPS. Um, So I just kind of like figured it out as I went along. I think the other important thing though, that I when I look back, because it sounds, it does sound a little bit glorious, but I was working two other jobs and I was never in a rush with darn good yarn. And what I mean by that is I say I was such a saver. So I, I was never in the position with the business where like it had to be my main paycheck. Like I was working two other jobs. My husband was working. This was just more like I let it develop organically um, and that's how I like really got my learning the first couple of years. And so with um, the first business, the stuff would come in and you had it in your house. Did you have a warehouse at that time? No. No, I had it. I laughed because all the pictures, I mean, really up until five years ago when I got a, like a big girl warehouse, I mean, I would have it packed in my living room and in my basement and in guest bedrooms and everywhere. Okay, right. All right. And so you, um, you wanted to learn to knit and you and you kind of discovered this recycled or upcycled um, yarn. And so when we talk about this yarn, this is made from textile waste. Or can you describe like that first yarn that you were really intrigued by? Yeah. What is it really? It is. It's upcycled. It's upcycled silk saris. So um, just like you might when you're done with whatever clothing piece you have and you might like send it over to a thrift store. The same thing happens with saris, which is what is predominantly worn by women in Southeast Asia. Um, So in that it's a ton of material. It's not like you're just dealing with a small little t-shirt. So then the opportunity is, okay, how do you upcycle it? And I, that part of the world does an exceptional job. um, If you're willing to really hunt for it of upcycling, um, little bits and pieces of weird little mirrors or weird little beads and like building it into new product. Um, it's difficult 
consistency wise, like at, at scale, but you can always find very cool little artisan pieces in that. But with recycled silk in particular, um, just like you would, you know, with, um, with wool, like you would card it, get the fibers moving in the same direction. Um, the same thing is happening with the silk and then that's spun in some cases, depending on processing for like what we're doing, we might over dye it, um, or, uh, we might actually separate, uh, saris by color prior to spinning. So then you get more like pure colors that way too. Um, and then aside from like the more dense sari silk yarn that I think most people might be familiar with, we've also, um, created strips and then sew them together edge, edge to edge to make a ribbon yarn as well. Um, that's some of my favorite to work with because I'm a very lazy crafter. So I'm like, let's move this along. If it's not size 13s and higher, like I don't want to do it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, um, that's the whole process. Really. Okay. So for the, the ribbon yarn, I think we can envision like it's cutting the actual fabric into skinny ribbons and then sewing mm-hmm. them together. Like you said, for the silk yarn, th- that's because like silk is obviously made from the, the cocoon of the silkworm. And so they're these natural fibers. And is that why they can kind of be reused in this way, like recarded, as you said, and then spun? It's not just because it's silk, because you can do the same thing with cotton. So just like if you were to have a silk garment and it's been woven in some way, you can rip that apart and get the threads off of it and re-spin it into yarn. So that's what's happening with this yarn in particular. Um, So, yeah, we've had like reclaimed cottons before and things like that. We've also used um, base material like banana fiber, which comes from the bark of banana trees. So it's very similar to the processing like bamboo, but we're boiling down the parts of the um, bark that kind of peel off, they splinter off the sides. Those get boiled down. You have this nice long cellulose fiber and that gets spun as well, which is like this richly decadent, dense uh, fiber. Okay, that's super cool. So um, so when you did make this pivot, did you, I'm just thinking the closure of the first business, which had a lot of clothing and things like that, did you sell off that inventory and come, come up with a new name for the business and rebrand? And what was that process like? No, it, you know, that's like the sexy version. That's like... <laughs> That's like Shark Tank version. That uh, that was not what I did um, because I never held that much inventory. So maybe at any given time, maybe I had two or three thousand dollars of inventory. And that was like that was a nice part of my savings. So I sold off that inventory and Darn Good Yarn itself. You know, when I, it was a joke originally, uh, when I first, when I got my first shipment, cause I said, well, you know, I really, I bought it for me. Like I was like, I really like this yarn. It's, and but I said, if no one winds up buying it, I think people in my family are going to get scars from me for the next 20 years out of this material. Um, so it was, there was no like, okay, this is the last day of this first business. And this is the first day of darn good yarn. Like they both happened sort of at the same time and this one just sort of went away and then darn good yarn really just took on a life of its own. Once I really understood the opportunity for darn good yarn to be a conduit for safe and sustainable employment opportunities. Like it was at that point where like, okay, around the own was, that was great. It was my learning opportunity, but now this is really the thing that I'm, I'm focused on. Okay. All right. And how did you come up with the name? It was a joke. My friend came up with it. We were com- trying to come up with names for a yarn company we, and we were just looking at the yarn like well, I don't I don't know I don't know and she was like how about darn good yarn and I'm like that's 
what we're doing. Can we use it? And here we are. Right. Okay. All right. (laughs) I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Craftsy. And here is a message from Craftsy. At Craftsy, we know making. Whether you're new to the handmade life or looking to advance your skills, we have classes for all maker levels and interests. From knitting and sewing to quilting and embroidery, cooking, baking, paper crafts, and more, Craftsy's instructors guide and encourage you, empowering you to turn ideas into realities. And they have an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance podcast listeners. Right now, you can get a whole year of their premium membership for only $3. Visit CraftsyOffers.com to sign up and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. For only $3, you'll get a full year of access to over 1,500 premium full-length classes. It can be challenging to know where to go to learn new things, especially when you're an absolute beginner. Craftsy's instructors help build strong foundations as they teach, setting you up for success and helping you fix mistakes as you go. Their enthusiasm and strong teaching style make learning accessible to all. If you're an experienced maker and looking for new challenges and fresh projects, Craftsy is for you too. From perfecting your fondant skills to tackling complex stitches, from eye-catching garden design to next steps in sourdough, Craftsy has advanced classes in all crafts from instructors who are experts in their field. With over 1,500 classes, including downloadable patterns and recipes, Craftsy has a class and a craft for everyone. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That is 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Get this exclusive offer at CraftsyOffers.com. And now, back to my conversation with Nicole. Um, And so as far as like the employment opportunities, um, it sounds like making this yarn had been going on already. Um, maybe other people were mm-hmm. sourcing it too. Um, but you saw that there was a potential larger market demand for it enough so that you could create full-time jobs for the women who are creating it and, um, and be, you know, a, a person, a, a company that creates those sorts of jobs. So how, how did that happen? Like, I'm just, if, did you go to India at that point and, and meet them? Or I'm just wondering how like you realize the conditions that they were working in and their hours and their family life and like mm-hmm. came to the realization that, you know what I mean? So if you're just communicating via email, it's like, how would you even really know? Right. You know what I mean? So with Around the Ohm, the original business, I did have, um, towards the end, I had some really great suppliers who were on the ground and we were like quasi partners with some things that we were doing. Um, so they were heading to India. Um, one woman in particular, her family was is still a major manufacturing family out of Delhi. So that's where I was able to get the inside skinny as being an outsider, like being you know an, an American and not being part of uh, that culture. Um, so that was how I was able to get people on the ground without me going there initially. Um, however, you, you know, your ears have to peer, uh, perk up. Like I didn't go after market demand. Like there weren't blogs or Reddit saying like, oh, we need recycled silk yarn. Like to me, even if you go into big box stores today, even there's not like a green aisle, like you would go to your supermarket and you know where to get your organic coffee, right? We don't have that necessarily happening at the large level in, um, in craft stores. So 
the market wasn't really there. I had to tell the story. That was my job. And so when I realized in working with my suppliers and I'm hearing these stories, because what was happening is the lead times were just blowing up. So what would take maybe, you know, two, a couple of weeks to get a box of 50 balls of yarn in was now blowing up to two to three months to get in, like for, you know, slightly larger orders, but it just didn't make sense. And as I started to ask those questions, again, asking the stupid questions, not just like, what what's the holdup? Why is it taking so long? But trying to figure out really like who's making the yarns. That's when I started to piece together that these were, this was truly cottage in industry. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to like pump the brakes here because again, I didn't have the gun behind my head of this having to throw off cash immediately. Um, and I said, how, like, how much yarn needs to be made a day? How much yarn can these women make a day? What are they getting paid? You start doing like economic research of what the average incomes are, the area and employment rates and working the math backwards that way. That's how I then moved the goals forward of darn good yarn. So if I know that someone can make 10 skeins of yarn a day in this area, this is what the average wage is. And if I want to triple that, this is what I need to charge. It, it winds up then becoming like a backwards math problem. And that's how I, that's how I've pursued all of Darn Good Yarn's growth. Okay. And so your team now in maybe in India and also in Nepal, I, I don't know, but mm -hmm. um, yeah. is how many like people in total are, are creating product for um, Darn Good Yarn? At any given time, like it will, it will go between about 350 up to 600 when we're at our height of production. Uh, COVID did take us down a little bit. Um, so we're working, one of the things that we're using to build up more sustainable, that daily employment, not just seasonal, is our Yarn of the Month uh, subscription that we have on the site, uh, which is $10 a month. And people can sign up. They get a yarn that is exclusive to the subscription. They get first dibs to it. Um, and what that does is it just creates that sustainability so that my artisans say, this is like a baseline of orders. Like you always know, because anyone who's worked in retail, you're like, is the website going to work today? <laughs> Who knows? Or is iOS 14 going to mess something up with Facebook ads? If anyone who's doing digital marketing knows that all too well. Um, so this is, this is our way to sort of combat what COVID has taken away is to really reinvest back into the subscription. Right. And that's recurring revenue. And it's, as you said, a baseline amount of orders. Um, right. And was Darn Good Yarn e-commerce focused, like in a pure play e-commerce from the start? And is it still? I mean, I know you were doing the craft fairs yeah. prior, before. Um, yeah, it is. It is predominantly e-commerce. Um, we are reopening up our retail location. We did have retail at my warehouse for a while. And then again, COVID and everything else that goes along with that, we've shut a lot of that down. We do have warehouse tours on some weekends um, that people can come in. And it's usually just like you walk into 10,000 square feet of yarn and clothing and it's like, oh, this is great. <laughs> and so let's talk about the warehouse because that sounds like it was pretty a pretty big deal. Did How did you find it? And was it financially risky to invest in, in having a warehouse? I currently rent it, um, so I'm actually looking to purchase a warehouse because our lease is up here in the next year and a half. Um, and it was it was a, it was a huge step um, because I'm a, I'm the personal guarantor for the lease, right? So if anything happens to that, that's 
that was definitely um, that was definitely a scarier move for me uh, in, in all transparency. Um, but yeah, I found it. I just I worked with one of my really trusted brokers. If I had it to do over, I would have stayed smaller in terms of a footprint and relied more on having better financial reporting for like inventory reports. When I look back at what we use for inventory reports, I'm like, it's almost cringeworthy. Um, so I think if I had to do it over, if someone's at the, sort of the precipice of choosing, you know, do we go upgrade into a larger footprint or not? I think it would be really worth the investment to work with um, maybe a CFO, a certified, uh, a, a chief financial officer type role where they can come in and help you really dissect what's needed. Cause there might be <clears throat> parts of your inventory that are stale that you really shouldn't even be thinking about like holding on the books and it's better to just clear them out in a discount. Um, so that's, that's what I would advise. Right. And what were you using for inventory, you know, reporting and control <clears throat> back then? And what are you using now? Yeah. So back then we were using um, Stitch Labs and it was good until it wasn't good. I think just like anyone else who's used like app, like uh, web-based uh, utilities, which anyone who's e-commerce is probably using that. We're on Shopify. Um, right now we are in the process of moving from uh, a program called Sin7, which I won't say anything. It's just we're moving from it. That's my nice way to say that. We're moving over to Skubana though. Um, and, you know, what I'm learning as I've been in this a little bit of time is that it's worth the extra cost you think that you're not going to feel it, but you do feel it when you don't have those inventory reports. And I used to not understand what some things meant and shame on me. Like, I wish I had a better financial literacy at a younger business age. Yeah. Did you have someone teach you? I mean, it's one thing to have the right, obviously having the right um, software in place is important, mm -hmm. but I know from experience that you can get that report. And it can land in your inbox and you can open it and then just stare uh -huh. at it and not understand how to use it to make informed decisions. So did yeah. you have someone who taught you, okay, here's how to read this and then how to make decisions based on it? Abby, that's such a like a great point because it's like, great, I have tea leaves. I don't know how to read them. And so um, here, here's Nicole's little trick. When I would hire maybe an attorney or CFO or CPA, anyone like professional, I always had the filter on like, you need to be kind to me and you need to teach me along the way because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like, I'm just here to sell yarn on the internet <laughs> and knit. And again, I think going into it with like as little ego as possible and not being afraid to ask those dumb questions because what I often found like I would hold myself back from asking stupid questions sometimes, but then like other people in the room had the same question. And so I just, I, I was really fortunate to align myself with, I don't know, like professionals who had really high quality soft skills, if that makes sense. So it's like, you know, people are like, oh, CPAs or bean counters. Well, like, no, some of them actually have personalities and they want to see and help you grow your business and they'll actually provide mentorship as well. So, but you have to be an open book and talk about your goals and it doesn't always have to always be sifted out. They're there to help you do that. So I think in doing that and being very open and authentic with people, that that has allowed me to have these really 
like uncommon but authentic professional relationships. And that's how I learned. Like, it's not like, yeah, I went to school for four years for business. My finance and accounting were like my worst classes um, because I just didn't get it. So beyond the lack of complete understanding at first of Mm -hmm. inventory management, were there other kind of mistakes that you made looking back along the way where you realized that that you know, you were going in the wrong direction or purchasing the wrong things or hiring the wrong person or <laughs> expanding in the wrong way. So when I look back, because um, I've been now through like a recession and a global pandemic, um, if I had it to do over there are parts of the business that I let go because something seemed very shiny. And what I mean by that is I used to, when it was just me, I had a really robust, very stable wholesale business that sold directly into um, yarn stores around the U.S. And it was just me. It was me getting on the phone and, and talking and calling and talking about the product. And it was great. I had great relationships with a lot of store owners. And then my daughter was born. Um, and you know, you just, there's only so much headspace in a day. So that was part of business that like wound up just going off and sitting in the corner and it got abandoned and there were other things, but then the shiny thing that came in was like Facebook ads and digital marketing. And that's a very strong part of our business and that's fantastic. But to lose track of these other stable things that got me to that place, if I had it to look back, I would have pumped the brakes a little bit more and at least have found someone to run that side of the business versus saying, oh, you know, the margin isn't quite what everything else is. I would have accepted a lower margin and just had that diversity diversity of um, income to the company. Because um, it's like, you know, once you get like one big client, right, like Facebook, you're, uh, you're kind of stuck to them. It's a golden handcuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so are you no longer selling either through distributors or through yarn reps to the local uh, yarn stores? I'm not. I'm looking for I'm looking for yarn reps. So if there's anyone out there. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that that was put on hold uh, for a bit. Um, and I think, again, there's only so many hours that Nicole Snow can work. So um, I'm looking to rebuild that part of the business. Yeah, right. Exactly. And what about being in the big box stores? Did you ever have aspirations to be in a store like Michael's or Joanne's, all of which have yarn aisles, um, but not much when it comes to, as you said, a upcycled or green yarn or really a specialty yarn like what you're producing? I, you know, like five years ago, I would say that our supply chain wasn't robust enough for that. We, we've done so much good hard work through COVID um, to make things stronger. Um, amazingly, that I could see us approaching a larger big box store, but it really has to be under the pretense that we're doing this to green, like green up what they're doing. Um, There's some parts of, I think, the crafting world that just like fast fashion, it's sort of like the barnacle on fast fashion. If you look at where things are created and what their core contents are uh, made from. So I think that conversation, you know, it's, it's about time. People what are we eating? Is it organic? Is it conventional? What's it doing to our um, environment? What are we wearing? What is that doing to our environment? Like, we should be dissecting what we're crafting with as well. I mean, this is a big part of people's lives. Um, 
So I think if that conversation is there, um, not just to have a greenwashed product on the shelves, count me in. Mm -hmm. Okay, so possibility uh, for the future. And you've expanded the line beyond yarn. So Mm -hmm. it's still called Darn Good Yarn. But in some ways, the original business, some of the aspects of that original business have come back. Yes, which is hilarious how that all works. (laughs) Um, Yeah, a lot of people don't realize uh, over half of our business right now is apparel. um, And we've really created this, I like to think I have a little bit of a cult at Darn Good Yarn. Um, (laughs) We have a pretty hardcore audience. And what we've really learned what we've learned and realized with our customers is that they're just, it's about self-expression. So if it's through crafting or it's through what they're wearing and it's like funky, cool, reclaimed material clothing, um, you can kind of pick your path because what I realized is I didn't want to hold individuals back. I would get oftentimes like, oh, I love your brand. I love your story. I love what you're doing for these artisans, but I don't knit or crochet. And I'm, I'm so sick of hearing that. And then going over to India, I want to say it was like maybe six, seven years ago, just seeing how well these women could sew the ribbon. I'm like, you, this is, we need to bring apparel onto this. So then working and designing and creating garments that size all the way up to uh, US 32 has been a big part of what we do. So inclusive sizing so that all sizes can now participate in the eco-friendly clothing movement. Okay. All right. And so, um, I know we talked a little bit about um, your yarn of the month subscription box, but I wondered if you could talk about like the origin of that and how you came up with that idea. Was it just something that you saw other yarn companies doing or, um, and, and how, how is it a little bit different than what everybody else is offering? Yeah, I've, I've had a subscription of some sort for about four years. So I would say we were one of the OGs. Um, but I wanted to, there are some amazing subscription boxes out there. I I work a lot. I'm a mom. Um, and I don't always get time to sit down and craft, which I know sounds so weird. I should have all the time in the world. But it just doesn't happen. But I do love to hoard craft supplies. Like I'm talking to you from my overstuffed poor little craft room that I don't know. Maybe if I put another shelf and I could fit some more yarn in. Who knows? But um, I really designed this yarn of the month subscription to have people collect and sort of love and nurture this like really cool yarn that's made out of recycled material. And what makes us different than other yarn companies is that this is a hundred percent reclaimed material yarn. And um, we used to send it in a box and we started to send it in uh, compostable poly mailers. Some people thought we were like, I don't know, killed someone or something uh, by changing it from a box to a bag. But we wound up cutting our um, carbon footprint by 75%. So I'm like, that's okay if we got got a bad rap online. Uh, we still have to stick true to our ethics. Um, but yeah, it's really about providing that sustainable employment, getting a really fabulous, colorful yarn every month as a little treat. You know, it's like a thing of lipstick. And we're going into, you know, potentially hard economic times um, with there's a lot of bad stuff happening in our economy right now. Like crafting is one of those mental, you know, it's like therapy for people. So if you if you weave, if you knit, you crochet, it's not a huge investment. You can still make a small project with it or you can save it up over a couple months and then sit down and make something with it as well. And we have um, a whole uh, library of patterns as well and a very active online community, too, that people just share what they're working on. Um, so, yeah. 
Can you talk a little bit about your social media um, strategy? Because you have a great Instagram presence, and um, I'm sure somebody else handles that on your team. It's not you necessarily, but somewhere behind the strategic piece of it, I'm sure you have a voice or a hand. So um, can you talk a little bit about sort of how you think about Instagram or Instagram and Facebook? There's the ad piece, and then there's also just sort of the organic posting (laughs) and interacting with the community. Yeah. So, um, on the organic side and we're doing more TikTok now and I'm turning 40 this year and I have made like two TikToks in my whole life. I'm very proud of it. I actually love TikTok and I think that's awesome. So everyone should, should check it out. I, I love it. I, you know what? I, people don't realize this about me. Like I'm very introverted. And so like, after I'm done with this podcast with you, I will probably need to go take a nap because it's, um, you know, I can play an extrovert on TV kind of thing, but, um, For my team, you know, yarn for me, I never want it to be stuffy. And I think about like with the wine industry back in the late 90s, like if you went to a wine store and you know the exact right wine and like you would feel kind of insecure about it. I never want yarn to come across like that. Like, oh, you don't know like this sort of thing. about. And I'm like, no, yarn for me is supposed to be really fun. It's supposed to be like anyone can get their hands on it and have fun with it. Um, The eco the eco-friendly component of it is important to me as, you know, someone who lives on the earth. But in thinking about our social media, I want us to sort of be like your drunk, funky aunt. Like that's the, that's what I try to embody. And when I think about, and I would encourage anyone, like, as they think about their social media is like, who would this person be if they're posting? And that's, once we started to really understand that a little bit more, we start to have a lot more fun with it and get really dorky. And I think that's, it's really great for my team because they're making hilarious, like hilarious content now, especially on TikTok. Um, But it's just, it's a more authentic voice. When it comes to paid, um, I would recommend, so I used to run all of our paid uh, ads. That's difficult, but it taught me so much so that now I can help lead um, the strategy with, I have an ad team now that manages that at an agency. I can tell you though, that I kissed a lot of frogs in the agency world. And if you're a small business, um, I would just be really careful. Like I, I found, and this was like, this would always really piss me off is like, people, oh, darn good yarn. Oh, my grandmother knits. And you're like, okay, great. But we're on a social mission. It's a $44 billion industry. There is like some meat and potatoes here. And if you just put your stereotypes to this, we're going to have failed ads. And I used to have to kind of be the crazy person in the room to almost stick up for the industry. And it was, it was really incredible to me, like the lack of education. So I was sitting there educating. I'm like, I might as well do this myself. So I would just, um, I would always look at where the natural engagement is happening, keeping that ear to the ground, and then saying, okay, how can we layer that onto our paid our paid strategy? Right. And so what you're saying is that a lot of um, ad agencies or marketing agencies are headed up by people who don't have an understanding of the crafts industry in particular and maybe come into a business like yours that's making yarn and selling yarn to knitters um, and crocheters and spinners as um, as something that's like a little hobby or, f- you know, only for some 
sector of the population Mm -hmm. that they deem less important or valuable or whatever. And so you were having to come in and say, actually, this is a huge hobby. It's as big as golf and you need to understand it just because the majority of people who do this are female or maybe you don't understand it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and isn't, you know, actually a a large and profitable uh, sector. That's exactly right. And I, I, feel very like mama bear about the marketing side of it. Um, I, I don't know if this is like the feminist side of me, but like, I, I just am protective of what fiber arts is like truly what it is. And, and a lot of times it's, it's a very personal reason why we craft. Um, and maybe why some people have started these businesses. Like for me, it really started out of wanting to learn and then learning and then it like kind of do taking on its own, little world. I never like in the world of like flipping inventory on Amazon and like, there's just so much get rich quick in e-commerce and it's so easy to like take away the purity of fiber art. (laughs) Um, and it's, it's so like, it's important. I mean, just like when, you know, if you're going to go cook something, right, like the kind of pot you use, the kind of ingredients you use, like people, that's important. And it's, it can get cheapened very quickly. And then we lose what makes the, what makes fiber art so beautiful, what makes it such an important part of our world. It's not like, yeah, okay, it's a huge industry. But I just, that's almost secondary to what the importance of it is. I really, I feel very passionately about that. And um, marketing and, and sales can like give it that an icky feeling, especially in e-commerce because it's it can be a really gross game at times. Yeah, we saw that with the knitting.com guys not too long ago. Oh my God, <laughs> I almost lost my, I, I almost lost my mind with that, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it is easy to misunderstand what the importance is of this, you you know, and I've had private equity guys come to me as well with like big dollar signs in their eyes and pitching these ideas. And I just am like, no, like what you're doing is is not is like corrupting the the really the essence of it. And as a result, you're never going to succeed because the people who who do this can smell (laughs) somebody who's out there just to make money the way that you are so yeah yeah I didn't I didn't mean to pontificate I just like (laughs) yeah no one's gonna mess with my fiber right but I, I do feel like that um deep appreciation and understanding um from the role of CEO is so important so and and you can tell in companies that have it and companies that don't um and so um and you mentioned being a mom you have a daughter and I wondered how um having a child sort of changed your day-to-day and also changed your kind of perspective on the business a loaded question Abby (laughs) you know it's it, it was intense um like, you know, the cliche, definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, having my daughter, like, I was such a reluctant mom, reluctant entrepreneur, reluctant mom. Maybe there's like something I need to work through in therapy there. But um, having 
my daughter and having her see like the sort of life we have in terms of like my husband working with the business. He works on the uh, dev side with the uh, website and the safety side of things. Um, it's such a great upbringing for her to see. And I think, you know, having a woman run show is pretty cool. Like it's for me, it's really fulfilling to have her see her mom in a leadership role. Um, but it's, there are some hard times. And like, when I, when I look back, I go like, man, I wish I had more support from like my circle. Like I just, I thought I could do it all. And again, it was the ego side of me. Like I got this, I could have a baby. I could run the business, no problem. And it was like, Oh my God, it almost killed me. It was really difficult. Um, looking at it now, I just don't have the energy I used to have. So things where I would like earlier in my career, I'd say, yeah, I'll just work a 16 hour day. No problem. Like I'm good for eight or 10 these days, maybe 12, but I can't, I can't push it beyond that. Like my brain is mush and then I don't show up for my daughter. So, um, I don't know if that really answers the question. It's just, it's, it's, I've had to modify how I think about what my most important role is to the business, which is the strategist and the visionary role. Um, I can't get into the nitty gritty the way I used to. And in some ways, like that makes me sad. I don't know. I've been, I've just been, I'm sorry. I'm like stumbling over this, but I think I've been able to have a bigger vision and get out of the day to day uh, of the company. And I think as, how old is your daughter now? She's five. Five, right. And I have teenagers. I have an 11 year old and then I have two teenagers. And, you know, it's an interesting shift because there's a certain amount of attention and type of attention that you need to pay to your child when they're you know, a toddler and lower elementary school. And then it's a very different type when they become a teenager. And in some ways, I had a mom tell me once, you know, that she wishes looking back that she had worked full time through the toddler years and actually became a stay at home mom through the teenage years. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think about that often because they do need you, but they need you in a really different way. But it's still intense. It's just different. <laughs> so. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting because like, I, I think in like slowing down, it's so like anti, almost anti-American, like slowing down has allowed me to have like these bigger ideas for the company. Like it's just my, my brain needs space to breathe. And I think having like sitting down and playing Polly Pockets for an hour really helps me actually think yeah. through things a lot. Um, I, one of the, uh, the best tests I've ever, I did something called the Berkman test, um, which is sort of like, you know, it's a personality test. And it really did help me understand, like, what my brain needs to ideate and come up with, you know, what makes it so what makes my ideas, you know, so special. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of anti American. But I agree with you that that forced time to pay attention to something else actually frees you up to yes. come up with new ideas. So I think that's that's really smart. So um, I would love to get to your list of recommendations because you have some good ones. The first of which I also love, which is Uppercase Magazine. And we've had Janine Van Gool on this podcast for folks who want to get the backstory on that magazine. But what do you love about Uppercase? Oh, my God. I love, I love Upper... Like, I have them all over here. Like, they... There's... It's just like a safari for your eyes every single month. Well, it's every month, every like other month or something like that. But it's um, 
oh my God, I feel like a kid when it shows up, but like, then I have to take my time and like take in every single morsel and page. I think even down to the paper that it's printed on, it's just these curated, it's just this beautiful curated magazine. And if you haven't subscribed to it, shame on you. You really need to do that. <laughs> but it's just so many different genres of art um, and the collection and the colors. It's just I love I love them and I love going back to them at different times of the year as well just for ideas and to be inspired. Yeah, we offer our members a discount to uppercase too and one of the things I love about what Janine does is she really invites the community in. So she has open calls for submissions where she shares the theme of an upcoming issue and what she's looking for. And you don't have to be some famous, you know, artist with a million mm-hmm. people following you on Instagram in order to get accepted. You just have to have a beautiful piece that you submit for the right prompt and you could get into uppercase, which I think makes it really accessible in the way that you were talking about how you don't want yarn to be kind of this like language you can't get into, like walking into a wine shop and not knowing the differences and not knowing what you're looking at. You know, she really makes it being published in a mag, a beautiful magazine, really accessible and open to everybody. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. And then you've been, um, are you taking Udemy classes or are you making Udemy classes? No, no, I'm not that cool to make them yet, but I've been taking, um, I've been taking Udemy classes I'm really random stuff. That's like kind of the beauty of it. So you can take like a one or two hour class. Um, so I started when we moved to Portsmouth, I started taking watercolor classes. And um, again, like how everything ties together, like just taking that space and time, but you know, learning about um, layout and sort of different components of what I should be thinking about when I'm pulling together a painting and being able to even bring that into business. Um, Udemy though has been just one of these things I can just do it on my own, do it at two X and at two X speed and kind of rock and roll and just pick up some new skills that I didn't have. I love watching things and listening to things at two X speed. <laughs> oh, I mean, you're my spirit animal. Like, what is going on in Nicole's car? Cause like, blah, 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 yeah, blah, but blah, blah. I'm like, I'm going to listen to this 45 minute podcast in 15 minutes. Exactly. <laughs> I do it all the time. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe people are listening to this podcast. And I don't know, but that, if you want to do that, you be my guest. So, um, and then you have a going to sleep routine that involves doing some embroidery. Yes. So I have been trying to really clean up like my sleep hygiene, being way more conscious of that. I, I usually, and it sounds so silly, but it's allowed me, I really like no phone, no screens, um, unless I'm watching My Little Ponies with my daughter. Um, I think we're on Boss Baby right now. But aside from that is really cleaning up what I'm ingesting going into bedtime and it has improved the quality of my sleep so much. So what I do is like at eight o'clock, I start to wind down electronics off and then I will pick up. I started cause I needed another fiber art and another craft. So I picked up embroidery <laughs> and, um, and I just work on that now. And it's such a, I used to not find as much time to craft and that's my time now. And like, I really cherish it. Um, so that's my, I don't know if it's my tip or whatever, but I've really been enjoying just changing it up in my life. 
because I would just go all the way to the end. Oh, I'll put away laundry or I'll do this or whatever. Yeah. And um, I just said, no, I'm going to stop. And it's it's really, it's helped my mental clarity. Yeah, it's, that helps me as well. Because when you own your own business, you can always work on something. There's always emails waiting for you. There's always something that you didn't get done that you could get done. And now, you know, the kid's in bed and it's 8.30. Like I could just take care of that. And then you sort of get absorbed into it. Mm-hmm. And then it's 10 o'clock at night and you can't sleep. I mean, that's what happens to me often. And so I've really tried to say like boundaries, like, we're not, you know, the, that email can wait and I'm not, I'm not going to get involved in this right now. Yeah. And you know. you know, I think for me too, is that then I don't, because I've consolidated that time. And that goes back to the question you had before, like, how has it changed with having a child? Like my six or eight hours or whatever I'm working during the day are some really rock solid kick-ass hours because I know then come eight o'clock, that is my time. Like I'm not. And so there's no like wishy-washing around it, which it's, I don't know, I'm trying to grow up a little bit. I'm trying to parent my inner child or whatever. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think that, you know, motherhood really gives you that gift of valuing your time. I always think of it as like, if you were traveling and you were only going to be, you know, like in Rome for three days, you wouldn't like sleep late. Like you'd wake up, you'd go see everything, eat at every, you know, eat at every bakery, do everything. And it's like, you really valuable that time because you only have three days. Well, motherhood gives you that permanent sense of like, I need to like finish this so that I can go pick someone up from school and then take them to soccer. And like, you know, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's good. I mean, it's good for us. I feel like because otherwise, you know, before I had children, I would just use all my time, it seems like to get the same amount done. I know. You're like Julie Andrews and Sound of Music, like... (laughs) Great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time to be thank on you. the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great talking to you. Thank you. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Craftsy. Whether you're new to making or looking to advance skills in a favorite hobby, Craftsy is the place to learn. With over 1,500 classes, there is something for everyone from knitting and sewing to baking and cooking gardening, embroidery, quilting, and more. Visit CraftsyOffers.com today and get a full year of Craftsy Premium Membership for just $3. That's 97% off the regular price. Start turning ideas into projects you can be proud of. Thank you so much, Craftsy. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.